the Mississippi became for Mark Twain his Harvard and his Yale, the way that Melville says the whaling boat was his Harvard and his Yale. Uh, he announced that every character he had ever written, created in his literature, he had met on the Mississippi River. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, I've got a special guest on, Dean Klinkenberg. Dean grew up in the Midwest, lived in a lot of different states around here, including Minnesota for a while, where he actually went to high school. A lot of you may know his brother, Kevin, who is a very active new urbanist blogger, very active in the CNU. I've heard speak a number of times, very eloquent, very well-written, and a really nice guy. Dean and I had a chance to meet a while back when he came through Brainerd on a trip he was doing, doing some research on the Mississippi River. We had a delightful conversation, had a really nice walk around town. I wanted to try to get him on the podcast to talk about some of these things. Dean Klinkenberg, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a, it's a pleasure to be part of the podcast. You're down in St. Louis right now, right? I am. I've been here for 25 years. You're a Midwest guy, but you seem to have migrated to the Mississippi River. What is it about the river that has drawn you to it? It started in a real subtle way. Uh, I went to college in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and that was really the first place where I had a chance to spend a significant time along the Mississippi. It just became one of my favorite places to ride my bike down to when I needed a little bit of downtime, when I needed some time just to kind of think through what was going on and, you know, what it's like when you're... 18 to 24, it seems like every day is a, a mood swing of some kind. And uh, I often just got on my bike and rode down to the river to kind of sort through different things that were going on and or just to watch and see what was happening down along the riverfront. So that's kind of what got me started. But there were so many other ways to relate to the river in La Crosse. It's an area where recreation is the lifestyle for a lot of people. So a lot of folks have boats and canoes, and they spend time out on the river in the summertime. And in the wintertime, they have their uh, fishing uh, houses they put out on the, the frozen parts of the river. So that kind of rubbed off. You know, all those people who are, are there interacting with the river, having their lives be such a part of the river every single day rubbed off on me. But it took a little while before I got so hooked that I decided I wanted to spend a good portion of my life to get to know the region's history more, to understand the river more. And I started doing that about six years ago when I was looking to make a career change. You and I met in Brainerd. I mean, that's my hometown here in central Minnesota. You had contacted me and asked if you could swing by and just chat. What in the heck were you doing coming to Brainerd, Minnesota? <laughs> Sometimes I ask myself that question as well. But, uh... <laughs> There's a lot of us that ask ourselves that question. <laughs> Uh, now, Brain is a fine community. It has some issues, but it's a fine place. Well, I, uh, I was really lucky. Back in 2011, I spent almost the entire summer in northern Minnesota and the Twin Cities getting to know that part of the river. When I started this project a few years ago, I started thinking that I was going to write travel guides for the Mississippi Valley so that people who had an interest in the river 
could explore it in some depth rather than just driving there, looking at the river and moving on. I wanted them to understand more uh, about the region's significance. So I spent a lot of time doing weekend trips and maybe a week here and there. But when it came to northern Minnesota, it just wasn't practical to do a week here and a week there because the, the travel distance from St. Louis is too far. So I just decided you know, I had to find a way to, to spend the bulk of the summer up there and squeeze in as much as I could during that time. So uh, when we met, you know, I, that was actually, I think, the second part of the summer for me. I spent a month in the early part of the you know, late spring, early summer in Grand Rapids. I was lucky enough to uh, have a friend who let me stay in her house for that whole month. And then I came back to St. Louis for a couple of weeks and to make a little bit of money so I could keep doing the rest of the summer. And that's when I met you. I was spending a, a week in Brainerd. Uh, I'd been in a couple of other places before then. Uh, and I really was just trying to get a sense of what the river meant to folks in the northern reaches of the Mississippi, to see what the river looked like, to get a sense of what the river's ecosystem was like in that part of the state. Plus, hang out and eat some hot dish and uh, have some uh, <laughs> local beverages, too. Right. I want to ask you specifically about some of the cities that you've run into in a broad overview sense. Why don't you give us a couple of your favorite cities along the Mississippi and why? It's hard for me not to uh, include La Crosse among the, the favorites. I'm sure that I'm biased because I lived there for six years. Part of what I think makes La Crosse so special is that it's a place where you can feel the threads of history when you're walking around. The town has, a, has done a decent job with preserving important, tangible reminders of its past, but even more so, the river is, like I was saying earlier, such uh, an integral part of the region's identity and people's lifestyles. People spend so much time with the river year-round. It doesn't have to be just in the summer when they can take a pleasure boat out. And besides that, you know, La Crosse is a big enough place that there are good places to eat. There's, you know, a number of good local businesses to patronize coffee shops. There's good local beer. It's a place where you, there's no shortage of things to do. So La Crosse has to be up there among my favorites. Besides that, you know, in terms of like the smaller towns, I also really love McGregor, Iowa. McGregor is, I think, maybe seven or 800 people. But it's another one of these places where it has such a strong connection to the river even today. And people who come and visit there, uh, and they get a fairly substantial number of visitors for a town of their size, visitors who go there get a, a good chance to experience what the Mississippi means to that community. It's another place like La Crosse that has some good local businesses. They even have a craft brewery, uh, brew pub in McGregor, which always gets my attention. Besides that, the architecture is pretty well intact. It's one of those spots that has an interesting geographic feel because it's built into a, a narrow coulee that uh, is perpendicular to the river. So it, it has a lot of visual appeal. There's plenty of things to do. It's also just a place you can just hang out and relax if that's what you're in the mood to do. And I'm sure that there are other places I'm not thinking of now that other people will uh, point out to me later. I probably should say something about St. Louis since I've lived here for 25 years. <laughs> but frankly, you know, our riverfront is a work in progress. I'll be nice and put it that way. But those two places, McGregor and Cross, certainly are high on my list. St. Louis is a work in progress. I guess I was there myself a few years ago for the first time. 
you know, the old breweries and all that give it a lot of character and it looks like they're doing some work. We went up, of course, in the, uh, what do you call the arch? Is that, you just call it the arch? Yep. That okay. works. We went up in the arch. You know, my kids loved it. They thought it was great. We went to a ball game and stuff. St. Louis seems like one of those places that could be a heartbreak kind of city when you meet it along the river. If you didn't know that potential, let's go there. Are there other cities that you would put kind of in that heartbreak category where you come across it and you're like, oh, I, <laughs> my heart just bleeds for this place. Is St. Louis one of those? And, and if not, what are some of the other ones? I think St. Louis probably does fit in that category. Like there are two different experiences here. Like if you're coming on the river, your experience is mostly heavy industry and barges until you get to downtown and then you see the arch. But that whole stretch is so industrialized. I think that's part of the reason we don't have as beautiful a riverfront park as other places. And look, the arch is a beautiful thing, but that's really all we have. The rest of the riverfront is either inaccessible or it's deteriorating. And there is a plan in the works now uh, to try to reshape the arch grounds and make the connection between downtown and the river easier for pedestrians, especially to remove some of the barriers for pedestrians to go back and forth. You know, that part of it isn't the greatest. Uh, We turned our back on the river when the railroads came through and we never really pivoted back to the river. Other communities have done a much better job of that. In the Quad Cities, for example, they had heavy industry along the river too. And in the past 15 or 20 years, they've spent a lot of time developing parks and trails and making it really easy for people to get to the river. And it shows for the number of people that you'll see uh, using those places along the Mississippi and the Quad Cities. Besides St. Louis, though, you know, Clinton, Iowa is one of those places that I really think it should be more than it is. It's a community of about 20,000 or so people. Uh, And I remember the first time I drove through there, I made a note that Clinton is one of those communities that has been a hard luck town from the beginning. And only later did I realize how wrong that impression was. It actually was a major manufacturing center during the logging era. They had Thousands of, of mostly men working in the sawmills processing the lumber coming from the forests of Minnesota and Wisconsin. And they had a lot of rich people and they had a lot of big architecture and a very active community. And then over time, they have just uh, gradually torn down most of that legacy. So when you drive through today, you see very little that reminds you of that city's once prosperous past. So I feel bad for it. It's a place that does have some good reasons to stop, and it does have an interesting history. But they've obliterated so much of it, you don't get to see much. And they just built a brand-new four- or six-lane highway through town that probably is there mostly to service the uh, giant ADM plant. But as a tourist, all it does is it makes it that much easier to pass through without stopping, and they haven't really done much to give you a reason to stop. How about Minneapolis-St. Paul? Minneapolis-St. Paul has often been compared to St. Louis in terms of the size and the scale. The people from Minneapolis and St. Paul would probably be mad at me for lumping them in together because I think the riverfronts are very different. Why don't you give us your impression of those two places, Minneapolis and St. Paul? 
I think they're very different places. I think both cities are in the midst of some very impressive efforts to redo their riverfronts to make it easier for people to get there. Minneapolis is, I think, further ahead than St. Paul is. I think one of the things that stands out for me for much of that area, but I think this applies more to Minneapolis, is how almost all of the land that abuts the river itself is public. You won't see rows and rows of houses that block access to the river. There are bike trails and parks and green space that line the Mississippi almost throughout the entire Minneapolis city limits. More of that's happening in St. Paul now, but it's amazing how easy it is to get to the river in Minneapolis. And when you're there, in the summertime especially, you see the impact of that. There'll be thousands of people who are out on these trails all day who are biking or jogging or just walking along the river. So I think Minneapolis has, hands down, the best riverfront along the Mississippi. Wow. Yeah. St. Paul is getting there, but they're also very different communities. I think you know, Minneapolis has the vibrant downtown with, I'm pretty sure there's quite a few more people who live in downtown Minneapolis than live in downtown St. Paul. Right. And that affects the experiences along the river, too. I think all those residents downtown Minneapolis will be down the river and contribute to that feeling of the number of people who are out there. In St. Paul, the city still kind of shuts down about 5 or 6 o'clock, and there's not as much going on unless there's a sporting event. How far south have you gone in this exploration? I've spent most of my time north of St. Louis, but I've had a couple of trips south of here, and I'm actually going down to New Orleans for New Year's Eve. Have you been to New Orleans before? I have. The last time I was there, it was kind of unfortunate timing. I worked for a conference, and I was there just a year after Katrina. Oh, wow. I haven't been back since. Wow. I had been there before and after, and feel very fortunate to have you know had the before experience. Have you been up to the headwaters in Itasca? Yes. I have to admit, and maybe this is going to make me sound like a little bit of a Northwoods hick, but, you know, here in town, the Mississippi River, I mean, you could, I don't think you could throw a baseball across it, but you could certainly hit a baseball across it. I've been up to the headwaters where you walk across it. When I got to New Orleans, I was stunned. I mean, I was stunned that this was like, <laughs> you know, a lake size and width. Give me your impressions of kind of New Orleans and in terms of being a river city, how maybe it's a little bit different for you than some of the other places that you run into, St. Louis or North? I reserve the right to amend these impressions sure. after spending a few more days down there now, too. But yeah, I, New Orleans fascinates me, and I can't wait to get down there and spend a lot more time. It's a place that strikes me as having an extremely complicated history. And the Mississippi is at the center of almost everything that happens. It's the visits that I made, the Mississippi was treated more as, well, you know, it's the working river down there. You know, it's there for the ports, and there's not the recreational connection to that part of the river, I think. You know, when you live down in New Orleans, people don't go boating on the Mississippi down there. Sure. You might see somebody fishing every now and then, but for the most part, the river is monopolized by heavy industry. And the town kind of looks at the river as a threat more than as an asset, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because of the potential for flooding. And that's very different than, you know, a place like Brainerd oh, or yeah. in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Where we have a relationship that's not layered in that way, where we view it as such a threat. 
that makes the whole field down there very different, I think. The river takes on a very different symbolism in a place like New Orleans. Atasca State Park up here at the headwaters of the Mississippi has to be my favorite, if not my favorite, one of my favorites. The North Shore of Lake Superior has some great state parks, but Itasca is just fantastic. Talk a little bit about Itasca from your eyes. Uh, as someone who's spent some time on the river and traveling it, you know, this kind of humble, modest beginning up there. Tell me a little bit about your impressions of that park and that area and the way that they've kind of set that up. I think it's one of the crown jewels of parks along the Mississippi. For one thing, it's a big park, you know, so it's very easy to get away from the crowds. You know, there are a lot of thousands of people will stop there to look at the headwaters and walk across the Mississippi to say that they've done that. And then they'll pack up and go. Right. But the park is a dense forest, and there's still some sections where you can hike through areas that were never logged, so you can get a feel for what the original, like, old-growth forest might have been like. Now, there's one place called the Bohol Trail that I like to hike. It's you know, a short hike. You can do it in probably 45 minutes round trip, and it takes you through an area that was never logged. So I like that for Itasca State Park. I like that you can have different kinds of experiences. When I look at the headwaters, I see our inability to just leave nature alone. The spot where the river emerges from Lake Itasca is engineered. That's not the way it looked pre-1930 or so. Right. You probably know the story, but you know the park superintendent at that time thought that the way the river sort of oozed out of Lake Itasca into a marsh, wasn't... It's not elegant enough, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they dug a channel, and they built a wall and put rocks atop it to make it a more elegant-looking beginning. In so many ways, that, I think, reflects our entire relationship with the Mississippi. You can't go anywhere on the Mississippi without running into ways that we have tried to engineer it to meet our needs. And it starts there at the headwaters. How natural is the Mississippi? I've been fortunate enough to be able to boat large stretches of it. For me, the impression that I've had is that there's a lot more natural than I would have maybe believed before I started the process. When you interact with it in normal course of business, you're driving over it or you're in a city where there's a river connection. But to actually be along it, there's large stretches of it that feel quite natural. Is that your impression as well? Or am I seeing something that maybe is more illusion than reality? No, I think you're absolutely right. It still surprises me at times, too. The places you can be along the Mississippi that still feel so wild. And you can be five miles from a major city uh, and be uh, along the river and not have any of the noise you know, not feel any of the congestion from the city. There are a lot of areas along the river that are still quite wild. I think in some ways the river has adapted to our engineering, although the engineering has certainly had a detrimental effect overall uh, on the river's ecosystem. Even the lower part of the river, which I haven't had a chance to really canoe or boat on much yet, I hear stories and see photos of places down around uh, Memphis and Helena, where there's still very wild backwaters, you know, islands that uh, have never been developed, that are havens for wildlife. So I think there is still a very wild river there. It's just in places it's stopped up a little bit, 
the, the northern reaches, the headwaters area and north of the Twin Cities. I love that stretch. It feels a little more wild to me than other parts, but it still has several dams and hydroelectric plants and places where its flow is interrupted. But it still attracts a lot of wildlife, there's a lot of fish. It's still doing reasonably well, I think, up there. And it's clean. How healthy is the river ecosystem? It varies. The northern half is not bad. One of the major issues facing the river right now is sedimentation. Before we built the lock and dam system north of St. Louis, there's like 29 locks and dams to maintain a nine-foot channel for navigation. Before we built those, the river was called the braided channel. There were islands throughout the main channel. The, the main channel was constantly shifting course. There were backwaters that might be two feet deep in one area, but 20 feet deep in another area. You could easily get lost in this maze of backwaters. With the building of the locking dams and raising water levels, a lot of those islands disappeared, and we see more open water in places now, especially close to the uh, just upriver of the dams. But those dams have also blocked a lot of sediment that flows into the river. That sediment would have ordinarily mostly gone downriver, and now it's filling up those backwaters. So there are places you know, in the 1940s that might have been 15 feet deep that are only two or three feet deep now. So that's one of the major problems affecting the river today is that sedimentation is filling up some of the shallower backwaters areas and could make the river into a single channel, essentially, and, and eliminate a lot of the backwaters. There's problems with nutrient runoff, too, from agriculture. Uh, there's some pollution issues, but it's not nearly as bad as it used to be. I just read an article about the, a fish count that was done in uh, just south of St. Paul in the 1920s, in that stretch from St. Paul down to Hastings, basically. They found three fish in wow. the river. Not three species, but three fish alive in that whole stretch of the river. Wow. Wow. Um, because it was so polluted, much of that was from meatpacking plants in the area at the time. You'll find more than three fish along there today. Sure. <laughs> yeah, we actually used to fish it all the time as a kid. And up here, it's obviously dirtier than a lake because it's carrying with it all that sediment. And, you know, it's a moving body of water. You know, it's relatively clean, all things considered. I mean, we would catch pretty decent-sized fish out of there. Are you someone who likes to fish or not? I hate to admit it, but no, I spent three months in northern Minnesota and I never went fishing once. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should come up here in the winter and we'll take you ice fishing. I'd love to do that. Yeah, The first time I went to Itasca State Park was in January, about three years ago. I loved it. I love seeing all these places at different times of year. In Itasca State Park in January, it's fantastic because there are very few visitors, for right. one thing. I, right. There should be more, frankly, but there Hardly any, but I got to go snowshoeing. I had the headwaters all to myself, uh, and I stayed in a cabin in, in the park. So it was a great experience, and it, it warmed up to about 15 degrees that day, so it wasn't so bad. It's a huge secret about just how wonderful it is in the winter. We usually, and our family, extended family, people usually go rent one of those cabins, either there or up along the North Shore, and you can do some nice cross-country skiing, you can do some nice snowshoeing, and... The place you're talking about in January is just gorgeous. It's just pristine. And it's so quiet. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing that amazed me so much. Is yeah. 
Yeah, I live in the middle of a big city, so I'm bombarded by noise all the time. But to be in a place like Itasca State Park in the wintertime, experience that stillness, I think it's kind of reinvigorating in a way to have a chance to slow down and to just experience that stillness. As you describe, because we're shifting right now. I mean, it's the end of November. We're shifting into that kind of deep winter season. And that really is when the birds fly south and you're left with the chickadees and kind of the winter mix of birds, and the animals are really kind of moving less, you do get that calm stillness that just strikes right at your heart. I love being outside in that crisp, still air. Itasca, when you get the whole river frozen over and the lake frozen over, everything is very still. Just a beautiful, beautiful experience. I would recommend that to anyone. I would, too. Uh, people need to visit these places in wintertime as well. And, you know, I will say that when I was on that trip, I had a chance to spend a couple of days in Bemidji and Grand Rapids as well. And I'm, I'm blown away by how people in the north adapt to the weather. You know, <laughs> there are all kinds of outdoor activities in the wintertime. There's broom ball. There's ice skating. You know, there's uh, hockey, there's snowshoeing and cross-country skiing and snowmobiling. I mean, and people are outside doing it. And it's probably not until it's getting to be minus 20 or minus 30 that you know it starts to uh, limit some of those activities. But the amount of time people spend outdoors, even in the wintertime, really impressed me. It always makes me kind of laugh when people say, you know, oh my gosh, it's so cold up there. Or when you're up here, people often ignorantly say, well, we can't have biking and walking here. You know, it gets cold six months out of the year. And I'm like, look around, look around. There's people all over the place all the time. And yeah, when it gets 20, 30 below, the word you said was limit. It might limit a little bit, but really at the end of the day, it doesn't get rid of it. I mean, <laughs> there's people still out doing this stuff, even when it's cold. I love it. It's wonderful. I'm glad you made it here. I look forward to doing it again because you know, once isn't enough. Let's talk a little bit about Brainerd. And, you know, you and I spent some time here walking around. We had a, a nice chat at the coffee shop and then walked the neighborhood. You don't have to gratuitously bash and you don't have to be overly nice. I really am interested as someone who's seen many, many places, your impressions of my hometown. Well, I'll try to be polite about it. Also. I have to admit that Brainerd itself is not one of my favorite places to stop. Part of it is that as a visitor driving through, uh, my first impression is that this is a place that doesn't really want me to stop except to shop. There are strip malls lining the main streets, and it's a big street with a lot of traffic, and it's not easy to stop in a lot of places, and it's not easy to get to the Mississippi River in town either. There's one park in town that I remember was along the river, and then there are a couple places outside of town. But in Brainerd proper, it's really hard to get to the river. And then you've got the core of the old downtown area that has a few locally owned businesses. It was Coco Moon, I think is the coffee shop there. Yeah, yeah, really nice little uh, place. Yeah. Yes, and I, I was really grateful to have that as a place to hang out uh, and talk to people. But Brainerd doesn't have enough of those kinds of places from what I could tell. You know, I spent a week there in 2011. I'd been back a couple times for a day or two here and there. And it's always hard for me as a visitor to figure out what to do with my time when I'm there. I usually end up going somewhere else and just using Brainerd as a base. So I don't think you get a very good sense of the town's past or any connection to the past 
you know, I think I remember making notes that when I first passed through there, that this was a city that must have developed after the automobile, that maybe, you know, the city developed for the most part starting in the 20s and 30s. So I was surprised when I found out that that wasn't the case, that it had a much long, older history than that. It's just been remade so much to be car-friendly that it looks like a place that sprouted up after cars were already around. And that's not really the kind of place that attracts me to stick around. If you were, I think it's abundantly fair. If you were going to make a recommendation just to the people of Brainerd in terms of how to look at their city differently, how to look at the river differently, what are some of the things that you would suggest that we do or we consider? From my selfish perspective, first of all, I'd like to see more places to get to the river. From what I've observed, part of the problem with that is there's probably a lot of private property and a lot of housing development along the river that will be an issue. But I think there needs to be more places where you can spend time next to the river itself and easy, uh, obvious ways to do that. And also, i just like to see a more vibrant economy of local businesses. Anybody can go to a Best Buy or a Target or, you know, uh, Kohl's or whatever. Every community has those. But what gets me to stick around the place is when there's a collection of vibrant locally owned businesses that help me learn something about that community and connect to the people who live there. And that's really hard to do in Brainerd, I think. When you look at a city along the Mississippi, how important is it for a community to have a connection? I say that because here in Brainerd, there's actually, you know, I agree with you that we would benefit from a deeper connection to the river. And there's a group right now, actually the city council has has made this a priority too, that wants a river walk, like a trail that would go along the river. To me, that seems a little fatty, you know, fad as in F-A-D, you know, like, okay, that's like the cool thing to do now. But how important would it be to just have a place to sit, a place to contemplate, a place to actually maybe just like get down and touch the water? For you, what is the importance for a river town of having that connection to that asset? There are a couple different things here. First of all, the river is a draw, period. I've been in places where it was really difficult to get to the Mississippi or where the riverfront isn't especially attractive. And there will be people there anyway. It's sort of a natural draw. People want to be around water. They want to look at the water. Some people just want to sit there and look at it for a little while. Some people go there to fish. If we make it easier, for people to get there and make it friendlier for people to stick around, give them a reason to stick around, more and more people will be there next to the river. I think we need more people to do that to be better stewards of the river and to understand the role the river has played in the development of our communities. It's not as necessary to the economic health of our cities, most cities, as it once was. Brainerd was never really a river town per se. It was a railroad town. St. Louis is a major river town, but the river today, you know, we still have a pretty busy port, but there are other parts of the economy that are probably more important than that port. So it's not so much that it's central to the economic future of the city. I think we have a river that we take for granted uh, and that we don't think about very often and that we often mismanage because too many of us uh, don't understand what we're doing and we're not connected to it. So I think having bike trails or walking paths or whatever along the river, if it gets people there, 
looking at the river, thinking about it, seeing what it is, I think that's a good thing. If it gives people an opportunity to have a place to go and sit and just think and watch the water flow by, like the Bob Dylan song, you know, watching the river flow. Yeah, yeah. Um, if it does those things, I think those are good, but it's not, I don't see it as something that's like central for economic development. Let me ask you about commerce on the river. For decades and decades, the river was this kind of principal way that we move goods in and out of the Midwest. Obviously, with the railroads and the automobile, that gradually shifted and changed. We often discount the river as a kind of place for commerce. How important is the Mississippi in terms of our national economy? This is a good issue to bring up. It's one I've been uh, studying up on quite a bit here lately. In some ways, it's very important. Uh, Something like 70% of all the corn grown in the Midwest is shipped down the Mississippi River. There are a couple of problems here, though. First of all, in terms of the overall, it's overall important. I think I saw a figure that about 10% of all of the goods shipped in this country are done on a river. And so most of that's probably the Mississippi, but that could include the Ohio River and other inland waterways as well. So 90% is shipped via other means, trucks and trains primarily. The other issue for me, though, is that we've created an infrastructure that is not really sustainable. And this is a word that I'm not always crazy about using. It's a catchphrase, but I'll use it anyway. We'll say it's not sustainable. Sure. Taxpayers fund 90% of the cost of building, maintaining, and operating the infrastructure that makes it possible for larger boats to travel on the Mississippi. The shipping industry pays a diesel fuel tax that covers about 10% of the cost. So the very infrastructure that they rely upon, they don't really pay for. And I'm sure the railroads and truck operators wish they had a deal like that. We have artificially supported uh, shipping on the river in a way that we haven't in other parts of the economy. In spite of all of that, the river still is an unreliable way to ship. In your section of the country, and really north of the Quad Cities, the river freezes over. Right. Four months of the year, there won't be any shipping at all. Then we have periods of low water and high water that affect uh, how much can be shipped on the river. Now there's a barge that crashed in uh, uh, Claire, Iowa, that has a, a section around the, the Quad Cities close for a few days. So there are a number of problems with relying on that for shipping. We, as taxpayers, we haven't fully understood how much of the risk of shipping by river has been transferred from private companies to the public. But I'm working on trying to educate people about that. In a big picture sense, the river is something that has always changed. Even before humans had interaction with it, it meandered in different places. It it moved across the landscape. How do you see the river changing today, either in our perceptions of it or our use of it, What is the future of the Mississippi River? Are we going to look back at this 50 years from now and see something completely different than what we see today? I think so. Um, I noticed some significant changes in the way that we view the river. And I'll use Minneapolis as an example again. If you were in Minneapolis in the 1970s, most people at that time thought of the river as a sewer or certainly not something that they thought about much at all. You know, it was seen as a dirty river. Why would you want to spend any time along there? It wasn't really seen as anything that was an important resource. And today, the river's been cleaned up. There are all those trails. You've got the Stone Arch Bridge. Now that's a pedestrian bicycle 
bridge only, or for those uses only. You have people who kayak and canoe on the river. You know, the relationship between the river and the folks who live in Minneapolis has changed a lot just since the 1970s or 80s. And I think that's happening all over the river. There are more people now who want to spend time either canoeing or enjoying some activity on the river. I think there's some pushback because there are the commercial interests that see the river as their provenance. And they don't want to do anything that might get in the way of their ability to ship goods on the river. So I think in the next 30 or 40 years, there's going to be more of those conversations to accommodate, find ways to accommodate wider uses. I think some of the infrastructure we've built on the river now will probably be altered so to respect more uses of the Mississippi than what we've currently been recognizing. In terms of the river's health, it's really hard to say. There, there are forces that could still alter the river in a way to really harm the ecosystem over the long haul. So I'm hopeful that in the next 30 or 40 years, we will find ways to respect multiple uses of the river and that we'll find ways to manage the river in a way that provides a more balanced approach and protects the ecosystem better. But we'll see. You know, some things are still an open question. I know a lot of people are going to want to see some more of your work and hear more from you. You're active blogging, is that correct? That is correct. MississippiValleyTraveler.com. MississippiValleyTraveler.com. You sent me some great links for some things that would be of particular interest perhaps to our audience. I'll post all those on our website. Is there another place where people can get a hold of you or follow what you're doing, or is that website the best? Oh, that's probably the best. I've got a Twitter handle. It's at MissValleyTrav. Those are really the two primary ways right now. Perfect. I do a fair amount of public speaking too. So, you know, I'd be glad to come and talk to groups about the river and my experiences. That would be incredible. And I feel so happy that you reached out to me when you were here and, and got a hold of me. It's one of those things where I distinctly remember being like, oh my gosh, you know, another, <laughs> you know, you, it's like I don't have time for everybody that wants to sit and chat for a little bit and have coffee. But, you know, you asked and, and you're here in my hometown and I thought, well, I'm going to meet with you. And not only a delightful conversation we had, but a great tour of the city and just hearing your thoughts as we went. I had wished then I had a tape recorder with me. And so I'm glad we were able to get you on the podcast and chat about some of these things now. Thanks, Chuck. And I certainly had a, a great time doing that walking tour with you as well, because it gave me insights into Brainer that I wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. So it certainly has helped me shape how I think and look at play, new places as I get to those places as well. So You're also fortunate because your brother is a genius, and I, I just adore his work as well, and I've learned a ton from him. How often do you uh, get to chat about these things with Kevin? Uh, we talk about it all the time, and it's fantastic. And I, I think we've influenced each other in a lot of different ways. My training is really in psychology. So we've talked a lot about you know, the psychology of place and some of those kinds of issues, and we bounce ideas off each other. So I'm really, really happy to see how things are coming together for him as well. And he's been certainly a tremendous influence on me. He's a great leader. And I know in the new urbanism movement, he's very well respected. And it's nice to see people outside of that group also discovering his work because it's top-notch stuff. What are you doing for Thanksgiving? Well, I'm cooking for some friends here. We're going to have probably 10 people for dinner and a few more come over after that for crafts and desserts. So that's kind of our tradition. Perfect. How about you? You know, we're going to hang out here. I think it's been cold enough where we actually can find a little pond to do some ice skating. 
we don't have any snow yet. The plan is uh, ice skating and then uh, hope for snow in the next couple of weeks so we can do some skiing. That'd be great. You know, one of these years, I'm going to forego my Thanksgiving tradition so I can go to Aitken for the day after oh, yeah. Thanksgiving. Don't they have the Fish House Parade on they, the day after Thanksgiving? <laughs> they absolutely do have the Fish House Parade. It is an I experience would, you need to have. Absolutely. Yes, I, I need to do that someday. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, It's funny because, you know, when I was in the Army, we met all these guys from down south, and they just couldn't believe. I mean, this was before Grumpy Old Men. They just couldn't believe that people would drive out on the lake in a car and then put this little fort kind of, you know, kids house out there with holes in the bottom and drill holes in the ice and fish. They literally thought I was lying to them. Like, you know, you're just pulling our leg, Marone. I had to get pictures sent in to show that it was is actually true. It's what we do. It's a different world up there. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Dean. And I really appreciate it. You're doing some amazing work. Please let me know the next time you're in the area or the next time you've got uh, some stuff you want to chat. We'd love to have you back on the podcast. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Chuck. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. You take care. Have a good Thanksgiving. Thanks. You too. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. The Stampedes. The gate crashing. The pushing. Do not push me. It's a TV for Even tasing. Shoppers consumed with the deal turning on one another. At this Walmart last year, one used pepper spray to fight suffocation in the crowd. This is Black Friday in America, and Connecticut shopper John Daggett... I've been standing in line for 36 hours. ...loves it. This father of an 18-month-old has been camping out for years. One year, he snapped photos as this crowd fought over $5 headphones. The shoppers just went berserk. I've never seen anything like it. People start lunging and grabbing, and you just see the arms all just go at once, just, uh, you know, forward, like a team of superheroes.